26 seconds <clears throat> were left. 26 seconds. Max Johnson dropped back. He has time. And throw. It's caught. LSU. Touchdown fourth quarter. Kelly and I were watching it. So that was just my replay of the whole thing that happened. <laughs> it was incredible. And we appreciated and loved every second of being there. We celebrated in Baton Rouge last weekend with the last second victory with the, with the LSU Tigers. And listen, it's football and it's fun. But it has absolutely zero significance in any of our lives. That's not in any way to suggest we are ungrateful. We would like you to do that every year if it was possible. But in the big picture, football is a meaningless celebration. I love it. I like to have fun. But it's fun to celebrate the temporary natures of wins, believe me. There are some, there are some monumental celebrations, though, that we need to talk about today. Celebrations that actually also speak of coming back and winning one for the team. And it's not, a, it's not a short-term win. It's not we have to do it all over again. It's not a temporary celebration. I'm talking about forever kind of stuff that we will be celebrating. Last week, week or two weeks ago, we talked about the spring festivals, and we got the story started. Yeshua's death at Passover, his burial, unleavened bread, resurrection at first fruits, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Shavuot. But today, and in conclusion, sort of hopefully not too long of a conclusion, this is two weeks of sermon boiled into one. The conclusion is the fall festivals, the coming back, the second coming. But the interesting thing is it's not a conclusion. What is it? It's the beginning. It's actually the start. The end of this story is the beginning of the real story that's ahead of us. So here we go. The fall festivals. And again, I, I've, almost like, I've almost had some embarrassment or resistance in, in my own spirit about teaching some of these things. Because 13 years as a synagogue, some of you have been sitting in the chairs that long. And I'm like, gosh, everybody knows these things. But I have to keep reminding myself, and God continues to remind me that, no, not everyone does know these things. And that's what we do. We teach, we make disciples, we help draw people closer to a deeper understanding of the Bible. And if you don't understand the festivals and you don't understand God's calendar, you're missing more than half of the story. So, if you know it all, it's okay. If you don't, this is for you. Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shmini Atzeret, all of the fall festivals mentioned in Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, first he said, speak to the people of Israel in the seventh month, that is the month of Tishrei, the seventh month, on the first day of the month you shall observe a day, first of all, of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets. The new year. Uh, the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. Yom Hazikaron, the Day of Remembering. All of these things are tied to the festival that is called Yom Teruah. And there are many, many similarities to other holidays, but one significant thing must be noted about Rosh Hashanah. What must you do on Rosh Hashanah? You must hear the sound of the shofar. 
which is, it's a memorial, it's a remembrance. The shofar is the unique element of the holiday, and Israel was required to hear it. And notice, this is not agriculturally significant, like some of the other holidays that we've looked at. It is simply, or, or is Yom Kippur, which is the festival to follow in our discussion. It is a time to remember something. A memorial proclaimed with trumpets to remember something. The shofar is to remind us of something. And throughout the biblical text that we read, what one thing does the shofar remind us of? That's one. And it's a trick question because there are many, many, many things that the shofar reminds us of. Here's a very short list. The shofar was sounded, a shofar, <coughs> sounded on Sinai at the giving of the Torah. There's a beautiful, beautiful midrash about that horn uh, that shofar, where it came from, it's connected to Abraham, one horn. The other horn is connected to Messiah. You can look that up yourself. Rabbi Google will teach it to you. <laughs> it was the watchman's signal of attack, the shofar, Ezekiel 33. It was the call to assemble for battle, Judges 3. The call to awaken, to be alert, to stop sleeping, to repent, Isaiah 58. It was the coronation of kings, and I want you to remember that one especially. It ushers in the day of the Lord, Joel 2. The resurrection of the dead, the Talmud tells us, Sanhedrin 16. And that's a lot of things associated with the shofar. And all of those things, now for us in 2020 or 5782, are to remind us that's part of what Rosh Hashanah does. It's an amazingly important sound in the Bible. But for Rosh Hashanah, it carries a very particular significance. It is the call to repentance. It opens the gates of what we call the Yamim Norayim, the Days of Awe. Rosh Hashanah is tied to the High Holy Days, the beginning of the most holy time in God's calendar, all of these happenings in the month, the seventh month. And this is the dominant theme of Rosh Hashanah and the High Holidays is connected to God, Melech, the King, Malchut, the Kingdom, the Judge who is opening the gates of heaven, opening the books of life and death. And sealing us in the books for an upcoming year of life or death. How, whether you're found in this book at the beginning or at the end, you have these 10 days that we've talked so much about just a couple of months ago about the days of awe. And for more information on the books of life, please see Is Our Hope in Heaven, where we spent a whole bunch of time talking about books. And who gets there? Books were opened. It's still, it's a strange concept for so many people in Western minds that God has books? Seriously? Why does God need books to remember anything? Well, it's not a strange concept at all to the writers of the Bible. And when books were discussed, it was assumed, assumed that the writers are talking about judgment. And the high holidays and the end and all of these things. And it's a symbol. God literally is not sitting up there with a pair of plus 125 readers like Santa Claus. Mm, looks like mm-mm, 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 naughty. Santa Claus isn't real, by the way. 
This is a strange concept, but it is absolutely a biblical one. On Rosh Hashanah, we have this figurative language that the books are opened, which coincide with the gates of heaven, that the righteous may enter. And it starts way back in Daniel, where we read about, I looked, Daniel says, and there were thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And he goes on and he's talking about the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And in Exodus 32, Moses says to God, listen, if, if, if we can't do it this way, blot me out of your book. Nor was that strange to the New Testament writers, who in Revelation speak of books being opened, judgment and books, that the king of the universe during this very holy and auspicious time sits in a judgment of the entire world. These days of awe. Yom Teruah. It can mean a trumpet blast. It can mean a shout. An awakening shout that says, wake up you sleepers, come back to God. So this theme of spiritual and physical awakening is associated with Rosh Hashanah and the sound of the shofar. And we know this. What's next? Ten days later, Rosh Hashanah, Tishrei 1, Tishrei 10, what's next? Yom Kippur. So if the books are opened on Rosh Hashanah and we have 10 days to repent and find restoration, what happens on Yom Kippur? They're closed. The books and the gates are closed. It is the holiest day of the year, the day to deny oneself, the day of atonement when God's judgment was pronounced and sealed by our prayers, our petitions, our seeking for life, our awakening, that we find ourselves at on, on Yom Kippur, Gemar Chatima Tova, inscribed for good. Inscribed for good. And again, not to confuse in modern times and Messianic Judaism that that means going to heaven. That's about life on this earth. But we did talk a lot about what it means to go to heaven, and it turns out with these books. Leviticus 23 is where we again find the Day of Atonement. It is to make atonement before you, before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. That's never the fun part of Yom Kippur. You shall not do any work. And listen to what it says. It's a statute. For how long? Forever. More elaborately described in Leviticus 16, we get the entire priestly service. If you ever want a deeper, deeper look at the priestly service, the Yom Kippur uh, prayer, the, day, the prayers have something called Seder HaAvodah, which is the order of the service. And our own Dr. David Higginbotham does a beautiful walkthrough with even some messianic things put in, so you'll have to come for Yom Kippur to hear David's class. But that's based on and built from Leviticus 16 and the rabbinic literature. The purpose then of Yom Kippur is what? Confession, repentance, we avert the evil decree, we wake up by the shofar, we repent through the days of awe, we confess on Yom Kippur, and God restores relationship because we have sought it out. Is that a bad thing? 
Is that a bad thing? Is that something that is, is legalistic and bad and we shouldn't do that? The answer is you should have your own little mini Yom Kippur every single day of your life. But at least to have one as a disciple of Jesus should be absolutely an imperative for every disciple to take this period of time and filter it, of course, through Messiah and his teachings. But my goodness, I, I can't stand it when people say, why do you do that legalistic thing? Why are you confessing? I mean, Jesus is, has forgiven all of it. And I want to say, why do you live such a completely unfulfilled life? There is nothing bad. It's all good. And it's God-ordained. This is the written word of God. Nothing rabbinic. God said, do this. And 99.9% of the world does not. And has no appreciation for the two days that I just mentioned to you. These are God's festivals. The purpose is clear. It's very interesting, of course, to note that the high priest would make atonement for the people with the blood in the Holy of Holies. And if you think about Yeshua and his priesthood of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, it's obvious, very obvious, that there's a good solid correlation. And we have a series called A Better Covenant, which will take you through some incredibly confusing stuff in the book of Hebrews. Because if you don't know your context and your culture and your Bible, reading through Hebrews, you will be like a Tasmanian devil trying to share the theology that you think you know there. It's a difficult book. Conclusion, days not of this message, of the days of awe. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, heard the shofar, repented, written, sealed. And now we come into this essence. It's a day of either saying yes or no to God, a day of connection or a day of separation. And then there is nilah, which is everybody's favorite because break the fast comes after nilah, the closing of the gates. And that's the end of the high holidays. Heavy stuff, but the festivals are nowhere close to over. What's next? What's next? Sukkot. First of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah. Tenth of Tishrei, Yom Kippur. Fifteenth of Tishrei, Sukkot. And Sukkot is sort of the absolute antidote and antithesis to the heaviness of the high holidays, right? It is Zaman Simchatenu, the season of rejoicing, the season in which God comes and dwells with us in our sukkah. There are some familiar agricultural elements. There's rest, there's produce, but something new that stands out always in Sukkot, it is commanded to rejoice during Sukkot. Anyone hate it when God tells you to have fun? Man, I do. I want to live the life of an ascetic. I don't want to have fun, God. I want you to punish me and torture me. But <laughs> Sukkot is... I don't, Hashem. I don't want any of that. <laughs> Sukkot, the sukkah, is built right after Yom Kippur ends. I mean, that's a good, gracious move of God. You just had this long day. You've closed the gates. Now let's get right into 
reminding you that we're coming into the season of rejoicing. And we're going to come out of these days and we're going to reconnect under the sukkah, right? And there's at the end of Sukkot, this sort of strange Shmini Atzeret, this eighth day gathering that the rabbis discuss. Is it part of Sukkot? Yes. Is it part of Sukkot? No. It's just a unique thing, but it has something very special to do with the world to come. But those are the fall festivals by the biblical sort of run-through and practical outlook. That is, that is a conclusion of the traditional understanding of the fall festivals. From Rosh Hashanah, sounding of the shofar, the king is in the court, the books are open, the call to repentance, the days of awe, the rejoicing, and all of that. Such a simple, very brief stripped down run through I just gave you but I hope that will take us nicely into what will be the end of this series and it is eschatological one of my favorite words eschatology branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or of humankind the belief and this is important the belief concerning death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny, destiny of humankind, specifically any of various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, or the last judgment. Now, there's a problem with that. I want to say this with great humility. But Christians struggle to understand eschatology. Because they didn't invent it. Jews invented eschatology. They didn't invent it. God told the story. The Jewish people have been understanding and teaching for so many years. And there is so much misunderstanding. The problem is, first of all, no one knows the answers eschatologically. Okay? You, none of us have been there. We won't know till we get there. And a lot of people come to me and ask me, what, what do you think about the, um, you know, is that, is that locust in Revelation truly a Huey Apache helicopter that's shooting out with the tentacles? I mean, is that, is that bullets? Or I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not going to waste any of my time trying to figure out if it's an Apache helicopter because so much of what Yeshua says is about practically living today, preparing for when those days come, you will be ready. Amen. That's what Yeshua talks about. But anyway, eschatology, it's a Jewish issue considered long before Christianity even existed. And we will see that the authors of the New Testament who spoke of eschatological concerns are not speaking in any way from a Christian perspective. They're speaking from a very, very apocalyptic Jewish perspective, right? So this is where we, this is where we go. And Yeshua leaves the world with a very strange departure statement. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. There's an incredible Moses connector there to the, to the song at the sea in Exodus. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And they're as confused as we are. What? Which is, I think, a lot of the looks that sometimes Yeshua got, even from his own disciples. 
Like, why did you say that about eating your flesh and drinking your blood? You remember that story? It's one of my favorite, favorite lines, though, in the enti- verses in the entire New Testament text when Peter, when he asks, are you going to go away too? And Peter says, what does he say? What else is there but you? And he meant coming to God through you. That, anyway, another, another message. Anyway, anyone have any idea what's going on there? What is this language? Well, I'm going to tell you very clearly as a bonus, as an addition to our festivals class, what this language is. What is this language, David? What is your estimation of what he's talking about? In comparison to a where two Jews come together and they take a vow and they then decide they'll live the rest of their lives together. Three Jews. Well, (laughs) marriage. Anyone ever been to a Jewish wedding? (laughs) Thank you, Steve. I have been to a few. I've officiated some. And there's always this, this statement that comes from at least one person. That was the most beautiful and meaningful wedding ceremony I've ever been a part of. Do you know why they say that? Because it's the most beautiful and meaningful wedding ceremony that you will ever witness. The ultimate celebration. That is what's going on here with Yeshua and his departure. The ultimate celebration for believers in Messiah from a Jewish eschatological understanding is the Feast of Messiah, which John describes for us in what book? Revelation. Revelation 19, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters. And he's talking about all this incredible stuff. And the angel says, write this, dude. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So for simplicity, this, among other texts in the Bibles, indicates for us a wedding to take place and a big old-fashioned party to follow. Anyone ever heard the term, the bride of Christ? Okay, well, there it is. But why? why what, what does this story, why does Yeshua say, in my Father's house are many rooms? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Well, in the ancient and the modern Jewish wedding, let me explain it to you. The groom-to-be went to the father's house to discuss the marriage of the daughter. The young man arrived with a dowry, something of value to to pay the bride price, a betrothal contract, and some wine. Prior to the actual betrothal, which was a legal transaction that took place, The woman indicated the acceptance of the man's proposal of marriage by drinking a cup of wine as a seal of the covenant. Do you see something connected there to the Last Supper and some wine that was in there and Yeshua holding it up? And Okay, good. I'll make it clear. The new covenant that he inaugurated was this betrothal contract, the wine, the acceptance of the proposal. For the disciples standing there and all of us, and when he says, remember me, man, the man would then pay the bride price and they were consecrated. They weren't married, they were consecrated. Yeshua paid with his life, which was quite a valuable bride price. 
The man would then go, would give his betrothed gifts. Gifts to indicate, you are mine. Did we get a gift from Yeshua? Yes, we did. It's called the Ruach HaKodesh. He gave us a gift. Reminders of the bridegroom. What What does the Holy Spirit do? It reminds you of all that He taught you. All that He said. And here comes our answer to his seemingly enigmatic enigmatic statement about leaving. It's not confusing, actually. The man would then leave for a period of time, return to his father's house, build a chadar, a room, which was part of the father's house, where after the ceremony he would then return and consummate the marriage and an amazingly joyous celebration and feast for bride and bridegroom would take place and they'd spend seven days in the bridal chamber, but for our purposes. It's the bridegroom's trip to collect his bride at this point that matters. All of that is beautiful. After the room was prepared at his father's house to collect his bride and bring her to her new home, he would go upon completion of the chamber. The bridegroom goes to get his bride at midnight with a host of people with him shouting with the sound of, guess what? The shofar through the streets. A celebration. Everyone knows what's happening. Everyone knows. And this is the key, what we should be looking for. When Yeshua, or Paul says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with a call from one of the ruling angels, and with God's shofar. And those united, died united with Messiah, will be the first to rise. But when we see and hear all of this shofar talk, remember what, what should come to our mind when we hear shofar? Rosh Hashanah. That was not a trick question. That one was very obvious. The shofar brings us to Rosh Hashanah. But especially now, given what we know about the sound of the shofar and its meaning to first century believers, Yeshua's return connected to the sound of the shofar should bring us to a recollection of all that the shofar means. The watchman's signal of attack, the call to assemble, the call to awaken, the coronation of the king, ushering in the day of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead. I mean, my goodness. It's awesome what that means. And that is what's happening. The king has been coronated, Mashiach. He's called, uh, uh, according to Paul's text with the sound of the shofar, the bridegroom is announcing his return for the bride. On what day? Rosh Hashanah. Hashanah. It's an opinion, anyway. There are others. The dead arise, and those alive in Mashiach are inscribed. Where? In those famous books. In the book of life, an announcement is made that the day of the Lord is coming and that battle is imminent. Now all who have not aligned themselves with the king, they must repent. For some, the shofar brings peace. For others, it brings dread. That's why Joel sings songs that we always say, It's not a happy moment. Can we say with certainty that it's Rosh Hashanah? Not really. But the odds, remember I told you we don't know everything about eschatology? We can't say with certainty, but the odds are 
pretty high because the festival calendar, as we've already demonstrated through the spring fulfilled, is probably pretty closely aligned with Yeshua's return. Is that hard to fathom or believe? I don't think so. The shofar and all its meaning would have seemed very clear to the New Testament writers who had Rosh Hashanah in mind. Well, and then what do we do? Well, check the calendar. Yom Kippur, the day of judgment. And we learn in Judaism of the shofars of God. We talked about this Mount Sinai and the giving of the Torah. The last trump, Rosh Hashanah, the resurrection of the dead. There's a shofar hagadol, the great trump coinciding with the coming of Mashiach, the judgment of the world to be sounded on Yom Kippur. We read Yeshua's own words in Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels with a great shofar. Acts 17, for he has set a day when he will judge the inhabited world and do it justly by means of a man whom he has designated. We will never escape the fact that there is a judgment of God. And you should never try to escape the fact that there is a judgment of God. It waters down your walk. That day, that last day of this present age, the day Mashiach will return from heaven, raise the dead, hold the final judgment, begin the perfection of the kingdom. That day, Yom Kippur and the closing of the gates, the sounding of the great shofar, to signify something incredibly special for the followers of Mashiach. And what is that? Clear alignment with Sukkot. That God will now dwell with us here. His presence and Mashiach will rule and reign directly tied to Sukkot. The harvest has been gathered. The festival of ingathering, a name for Sukkot. Messiah's defeated evil established the messianic kingdom where he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. In other words, he's with us. Emmanuel, aptly named Messiah. He's with us, but now tabernacling. And it's, it's an amazingly powerful revelation from Sukkot can be easily missed. It is also called the Feast of the Nations. You know that? Of course you do. What festivals will continue to be celebrated? Well, a lot of them, but Sukkot's a guarantee. Sukkot is a guarantee in the millennial age. How do we know? Zechariah 14. You don't, I, I didn't make it up. Zechariah 14, everyone who survives all of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. In other words, all the nations have been connected to God, the God of Israel through the Mashiach and will worship at the festival of Israel. And for a thousand years, this kingdom is established and God cleans up all the bad that happened. And then what happens? This is, now we are approaching the conclusion. You still with me? Remember the first festival I told you that was mentioned in Leviticus 23? Shabbat. Who said it? <laughs> it was funny, though. 
Shabbat. Shabbat. It's mentioned all throughout the Torah. We read in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and earth, and it tells, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. God prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God, Shekinah is with mankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people. He himself will be God with them and will be their God. And it says, I saw no temple in the city, for Adonai, Hashem, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine, because God's Shekhinah gives it its light. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things. The only ones who may enter it are those whose names are written in the book of life. Where are we? Where are we right there? We are now entering the eternal Shabbat. We are back into Gan Eden. We are back in the garden. It's even better than it was to begin with. God has brought this story full circle as he said he would. And so all of this, this whole festival cycle culminates here with this absolutely profound time of ceasing from all that was and living forever in all that will be. Shabbat Shekulah. What is it? I forgot it. Anyway. Yom Shabbat. Yom Shekulah Shabbat. The time that is all Shabbat. The new covenant. It's fulfilled. It is finally fulfilled. People can finally say that and be theologically accurate. <laughs> Messiah has been defeated, all the enemies of God, and as the story goes, we all live happily ever after. Yeah? Application. Easy. There is a double meaning of the fall festivals, and all of the festivals. It is for here, it is for there. And if you don't I mean, like I mentioned, a spiritual spiritual checkup at Yom Kippur. Come on. Uh, Celebrated traditionally. Celebrated even, even without Messiah in it. It's still beautiful and important. And thank God we get to put Mashiach and some awareness of that into it. But even more than that, with the future fulfillment in mind, we celebrate We celebrate these things with the expectation at this amazing conclusion that is coming our way. That's what it's about, which essentially, as I said in the beginning, is not a conclusion. That Yom Shekulo Shabbat is the beginning. It's what you're waiting for. It's what you want. And that's the beginning of our story. So from, 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 cre- from before creation, but let's start at creation. First thing God called holy, Shabbat. The last thing we have is this eternal rest. From creation to conclusion, it's wrapped up in two things. God's calendar, which is a part of God's Torah, and Mashiach. From the beginning... The depth of this subject matter is is literally a a lifetime, three, five, a hundred lifetimes of work for scholars, theologians, laymen. My hope is only that we get some real perspective on the fact that we get to do these things. 
We celebrate these things for everything they are and everything they should mean. And that's really important when you overlay this blueprint on Messiah. It really brings about a new appreciation. I want you to always remember these incredibly important words of Paul that we have mentioned multiple times here. With all that we've said over the last four weeks and what we've learned, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in connection with eating and drinking in regard to a Jewish festival or Rosh Chodesh or Shabbat. These are a shadow of things that are coming. The body of the Messiah. Amen. Amen. These are the appointed festivals of God. The festivals of the Lord and the festivals of God's people. Shabbat Shalom.